Hello, and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode looks at Battlefield 1, a first-person shooter developed by DICE and published by EEA, set in the First World War. Battlefield 1's historical setting represents a big departure for both the Battlefield series and first-person shooters in general. While many modern military shooters have been set in the Second World War, few have dealt with earlier conflicts. This transition to the First World War has also left many journalists and players concerned with how a profit-driven video game will depict an event which has attained a sacred stature in modern memory. Is it possible for a game that sells players on action and fun to also treat a sensitive historical topic with the respect that it deserves? Joining me on today's show to discuss this game is Chris Kempshaw, a historian of the First World War at the University of Sussex. In addition to writing traditional academic work on the First World War, Chris also studies the depiction of the Great War in video games, and is the author of The First World War in Computer Games, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2015. Hi Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So Chris, this game was the focus of a great deal of criticism prior to its release, uh, primarily because of what it was seen as a apparent heroic portrayal of the First World War. And many games journalists argued that the First World War represents a sacred and solemn historical event, uh, which should not be depicted in a commercial game. What did you make of this controversy? I think the controversy is very, very interesting. I mean, to begin with, we have to acknowledge that Battlefield 1 is not the first First World War game in existence. There, there have been others before it, um, and there were, there were going to be others afterwards. Um, and I think that if you're going to compare a game to Battlefield, um, there didn't appear to be any kind of outrage about Verdun when it mm-hmm. came out the game, um, which I think is interesting. There doesn't appear to have been any um, outrage about any First World War flight simulator games when they came out or mm-hmm. Valiant Hearts when it came out. Um, so I wonder if some of the controversy is based around a belief, not necessarily a misplaced belief, that um, Battlefield 1 is taking things to a more kind of mainstream appeal, but also DICE and EA have never been known for being particularly subtle right. in their games. Um, and there was, I think there was a great deal of question about exactly how sensitively are they going to are they going to deal with this war? Um, but I think it's also worth flagging up that we don't get an awful lot of these types of controversy about Second World War games. And you can do everything in a Battlefield 1 that you can do in a Second World War game and more in some aspects. I mean, there are some things in Second World War games that you'd never get. I can't imagine a situation where you'd ever play German soldiers in a Second World War game, for example. But then you don't play German soldiers in the campaign in Battlefield 1 either. Right. Um, so I wonder how much of the the controversy about it is based around the role that the war plays in our society and the way that we think of the war, as opposed to the way that we think about other wars like the Second World War, Um, whether or not the First World War is seen as just being too sensitive to deal with. And I find that idea very interesting. Hmm. What do you think about this, uh, you know, controversy related to how the game portrays this war as a heroic event? I mean, I think there's a lot of heroic elements in this game, uh, particularly uh, during the uh, Italian campaign where you're essentially playing as one soldier uh, wearing uh, this impressive body armor going up <laughs> against the, the Austrian lines in the Alps, uh, simply one man uh, against an entire army. I mean, what kind of message do you think that sends to to players who are maybe not as familiar as we are with the First World War? 
I think it sends some pretty interesting messages. Um, and the thing that struck me about the game when I was playing it is that you do get these heroic elements. I mean, the, that Italian level with the guy in body armor, that could have easily been like an 80s action film starring Schwarzenegger or Stallone. It was, it was Commando, essentially. Yeah. Um, but even bearing that in mind, the very kind of the opening prologue basically tells you that the infantry are going to be cannon fodder mm-hmm. is is the is the method that, and the message that it, it sends out to you basically saying that the infantry are going to die and that this war isn't going to solve anything it's not going to end anything mm-hmm. so you then end up with these two competing ideas of well we're all going to die but strap on some body armor pick up a big machine gun and you're good to go but there are other characters in there as well who aren't particularly heroic um the the flight's the flying level um and flying games for the first world war have always been kind of heavy on the chivalry the kind of knights of the air uh kind of biggles meets the red baron aspect but the main protagonist of the flight level is not chivalrous at all um he's a he's a gambler he's a con man he's a liar um he's he's pretty he's a pretty uh despicable uh ugly american yeah Yeah. um also there's there's significant doubt at the end of that level of that kind of series of levels about whether or not anything you've just played ever even happened. So he's not heroic at all. Um, so you end up with these kind of weird snapshots of heroism set against kind of anti-heroism. Um, the Gallipoli level um, is great because you're playing this kind of aged, ingrained warrior Australian who is kind of the the manifestation of heroism and, and without necessarily spoiling things for, for people, kind of his heroism reaches kind of uh, reaches a, a natural kind of conclusion in his story but you're always, always kind of set against this idea that actually this isn't a particularly heroic war you could you might do heroic things in it you could be a hero but it's not necessarily heroism or heroism to a purpose mm-hmm. right i agree i agree so moving on to the next question uh, you know you brought up the second world war and you know when you compare Second World War games to First World War games, it's usually the case that First World War games are incredibly rare. And is this difference the result of something inherent to the First World War as a conflict? Or is this difference the result of something related to the mechanics of video games? In other words, is there something with video games that makes it difficult for them to approach the First World War? I think, to be honest, it's probably a mix of the two. I think for a long time that games developers and some players to an extent basically thought that the first world war was too boring to play and too grim to play um like uh if you imagine kind of what you'd imagine to be an archetypal first world war game it's going to be you're in a trench in the mud it's raining you go over the top you die no one's going to want to play that it's no fun also put alongside the fact that i think computer game development struggled with some aspects of the first world war AI, for example, um, has always kind of it's been part of an evolution, but trying to find or a way of kind of making enemy accuracy accurate, but also not so much that you go over the top and you immediately die, I think was a, a difficult balancing point right. for them. When you come to strategy games, I think games have struggled until fairly recently with trying to create the circumstances and the mechanics to have a game where you don't move around an awful lot fun. Mm. Um, how do you recreate four years of static trench warfare and still make it an engaging strategy game? Mm-hmm. Um, to an extent, I think with that latter one, that Heart of Iron 4 have probably helped break some of the mold for that. And I think there's a, a First World War mod for that game coming out, which will be interesting to play. Mm. Um, 
in regards to what if there's a problem intrinsically with the first world war i think that particularly in british culture the first world war is seen as just being too sad and too pointless to want to really recreate in a in a computer game the second world war has always had a much clearer narrative i mean the, the bad guys in it are so bad guyish <laughs> that they're almost kind of literally mustache twirling evil cackling bad guys mm-hmm. um there's no there's no gray area in there there's no oh i wonder how this whole nazi thing is going to work out they're the bad guys they're killing everyone and they want to take over the world you can sell that in a computer game you don't need to worry too much about explaining things to people um people already know who the nazis are with the set the first world war who's a good guy and who's a bad guy is much harder to kind of really work out particularly when you're starting from a point of view of you know what everybody kind of suffered the same in this war no good came of it and no there are no winners there are no losers which is kind of the way that the war is presented to us how do you tell a story in that aspect and make it engaging if you can't kind of if you're not relying on the audience already knowing the main parts of the narrative right which i think has made things difficult i think there's been a huge change in that kind of aspect to it brought about by games like uh, Verdun and games like Valiant Hearts mm-hmm. who actually instead of seeing this as a constraint a cage where you can't kind of the, the first world war is too locked up you can't there's no room for you to tell anything in it what i think they realized was that actually lots of people don't actually know anything about the first world war they right. know bits and pieces they know mud they know blood they know trenches but actual proper events details about it if we were to walk down the street and ask people how the second world war had ended i reckon most people probably have a pretty good answer for us involving soviets invading berlin d-day normandy all of that type of stuff right if we were to ask people how the first world war ended i think they'd struggle to answer it um and what Verdun and Valiant Hearts did was go, actually, this isn't a problem. This is a huge opportunity because what we can do now is open up this box of all of these various hundreds and hundreds of things and events that happened during the First World War that nobody knows about. So we can let this play out for them and they're all going to get a narrative shock yeah. through some of them, particularly, I think, at the end of Valiant Hearts after the French mutiny in 1917, which there's no reason at all why anyone in England should know that, unless yeah. you're like an, a massive First World War geek or something like that. Right. Um, which is why I think so many people found the end of Valiant Hearts so surprising. Mm-hmm. The the makers of Valiant Hearts didn't have to create the French mutiny, they just had to use it. Yeah. And Verdun and Valiant Hearts kind of went, actually, we've got a massive sandbox here to play with. And I think that's why EA and DICE, when making Battlefield 1, looked at those and went, you know what, they're right. Yeah, that's what this is why we can t- tell stories about Italians and storming the Alps. And we can tell stories about Gallipoli and Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. We don't necessarily have to make too much stuff up. We just have to show people something that they've not seen before. Right. And yeah, I think you're right. I think Battlefield One operates in the same sort of realm of historicity or, you know, historical authenticity, whatever you want to call it. Um, I am interested to get your view on how the game deals, especially in the very first uh, intro level, how the game deals with this kind of uh, trench warfare where you you are presented with this mission at the very beginning where you're not expected to survive. And you go through playing multiple characters in the same sequence. And then after each time you're killed, uh, you take over another character. But before you do that, you are presented with the uh, full name and then the dates uh, for the life of the person you just lost. What did you think of that approach? 
I thought it was interesting. I, I've heard, and I need to play through it again, that those details and those names change every time you play it. Does. It does, yes. Um, I've played it twice. Fantastic, which I think is really interesting. And I, I would strongly imagine that these are not real people mm-hmm. that they're putting you in. Um, I think EA and DICE would be well advised to stay away from that aspect. I think if you start putting people into actual control of soldiers who died, that's when people are going to get started getting right. annoyed. Um as to the kind of the, those opening levels in the trenches, I thought, and, it, and I still think kind of across the game, that the most interesting thing about Battlefield 1 is the lack of time you spend in the trenches. Um, they avoid them almost entirely. You get them in that prologue level where you actually kind of get a feeling of what it, it must have been like desperately trying to hold back uh, a wave after wave of attack in the knowledge that, to be honest, you're not going to do it and you're probably going to die. After that, I think EA and dice and battlefield one basically avoid the trenches as much as they possibly can the only time you ever have any levels or missions set before 1917-1918 is in the gallipoli Mm -hmm. level in 1950 where you get a little bit of kind of running through fortifications and fending off some attacking enemies and like but they stay well away from the trenches after that because i think again similar to the kind of that idea that there's an element of the first world war that isn't fun to play constantly playing levels where all of your characters die you then find out about their age and their date of birth and their date of death and then you move on five feet down the line to their mate and then he dies um i think is a fantastic opening for a game but i wonder if basically it would become boring and it would lose some of its emotional impact if you stretched it out over the game i also don't think the the developers were particularly interested in making people defend yes for any long period of time i think they wanted people to be proactive to be protagonists and that means you've got to go forwards or you've got to sneak through no man's land back to your trenches as in the as in the flying level but i think they weren't interested in having a story or a theme in the game that you're holding out desperately against odds they wanted you to be the active kind of driving force of the game rather than basically just sitting there like a tower defense or horde style game where the enemy are just going to come to you and you're just going to have to basically blast your way uh, through They it. wanted the players to have a sense of uh, of the French term Elon, right? They wanted them to uh, yes. uh, to throw Absolutely. themselves at the lines and, you know, uh, use their, their superior masculinity, their superior force to overwhelm the enemy opponent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They definitely wanted that. I wanted I wanted to uh, pick your brain a bit more about this issue of depicting the First World War in games, uh, and you've written a, a very good book uh, called The First World War in Computer Games, oh, and one you. of the things you talk about is the difficulty of you know having the player play a strategy game set in the First World War, and uh, you know one of the instances uh, in your book describes the problem of the fact that if you're playing a strategy game, you're typically placed in the role of, you know, a high commander, a general, uh, if you were. And, you know, these are people, especially in the First World War, who are typically uh, seen as pariahs. You know, this whole narrative of lions led by donkeys, uh, you know, commanders sending their troops into uh, needless campaigns, uh, needless battles with high casualties. Uh, Do you think that there's any way that we, you know, will in the future get a first world war game that can kind of get around that problem of, you know, depicting you as, as one of these donkeys. I, 
I genuinely don't know if we will, simply because it's you, it's kind of like the clash of the two elements. You kind of have the First World War mythology on one side and the expectations of the play on the other. And occasionally it can be good to kind of mess those up a little bit and, and surprise the player. But I just don't know if a game's ever going to find a way of approaching that kind of strategic element and introducing the, the, the donkeys element. Um, of kind of the import kind of incompetent commander without making right. the player feel like they're being insulted or patronized i think people play strategy games because they want the power i mean that's why i play strategy games i want to be able to do all of my own tactics and strategies and i want to see my own mm-hmm. plans play out um and in that knowledge yes i'm going to kill an awful lot of people i'm going to kill an awful lot of the enemy and i'm going to kill an awful lot of my men but firstly you know they're not real and secondly Whilst I care about their well-being and what it means in, like, I don't know, in Empire Total War, in defending my own lands against a, a invading French army, um, I don't particularly care about them as human beings. I, you know, I, they might have little digital wives and children right. to go back to, but I don't really care. As long as, you know, they shoot straight and they live through the next five minutes and they can do whatever the hell they want with their time off. Um, and I think that that's going to always be the problem, that you can't fully balance the fact that there's no problem with having that kind of element of control in Empire Total War. There's no problem having it in Napoleon Total War or Rome Total War or T- Warhammer Total War or, or anything like that because you don't have the same kind of loaded um, identity that generals do in the First World War. And until that kind of identity drifts away, and I don't think it ever really will, um, I don't think you're ever going to remove that tension between... The, the image of a First World War general and the reality of a player being First World War general. Um, that being said, I, it's one of those things I wonder how much it ever really occurs to people that um, as soon as they assume the position of a First World War general um, and start throwing their men into battle, then they're kind of they're treading on some slightly dodgy ground. And I wonder, I mean, if when this this mod for Hearts of Iron 4 comes through, similar to the, the Great War mod that came through for, I think it was Napoleon Total War. Yes. Yeah. Um, that whether or not people will just go with it because they want to control the this particular war. They definitely want the strategic challenge from it. Whether or not it just won't be an issue that's particularly in the forefront of people's mind, despite the fact that it clearly is there. Nobody wants to be General Haig, regardless of what, you know whether or not General Haig has been unfairly maligned or not. That he has a very particular image, in particularly in Britain, of being an idiot and a butcher. No one wants mm-hmm. to be that guy, but they want the power that he had, and they want, in fact, in strategy games, give you far more power than any general ever had in any. Right, right. Um, near a, near godlike power. Near godlike powers, and I think people want that because they want the intellectual challenge and they want it to be fun and they want to enjoy themselves. And I think that First World War strategy games will always have that slight problem with them that doesn't necessarily appear in other in other games. And I don't necessarily know how you get around it. Right. I, I don't know either. And I think it's a very similar problem to what we discussed with regards to depicting trench warfare. You know, I think on the one hand, I'm sure there's some players who would like the games to be historically accurate and to have to deal with things like trench warfare, attrition... Uh, you know, war weariness, uh, whatever you call it, mutiny. Uh, but at the same time, those elements, those historical elements, would kind of put the player in a straitjacket to a certain extent. And 
would hinder their own agency. And I think if games do anything well, it's giving the player a sense of agency, a sense of power. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I think, I mean, you know, maybe that's just something inherent with the First World War that it just doesn't lend uh, players, doesn't lend developers uh, to that same sort of sense of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And even the kind of the method of fighting the First World War in strategy games doesn't necessarily lend itself well to strategy games. I mean, with most strategy games, if you fight a battle and, you know, the text message comes up on the end, congratulations, you won this battle. Oh, fantastic, we'll go forwards then. I mean, what's the first war equipment going to be? Congratulations, you won this battle. Oh, fantastic, we'll go forward, shall we? Well, no, obviously not. Um, <laughs> we're staying here for another two or three years at least, but well done. That's no fun. No one's going to want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think players would be a bit disturbed to discover how boring the First World War was for most soldiers. I mean, I think, uh, you know, when you read war diaries, when you look at, uh, you know, secondary literature on the war, one of the things they emphasize for the soldiers in the trenches is just how much, you know, how much boredom and tedium there was and how little fighting there often was. And I think that that would be difficult to to relate in a video game. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, the the vast majority of soldiers spend their time sitting and digging and marching. Um, mm-hmm. That's it. The reason why the big attacks are so kind of uh, they produce so many casualties is because they're rare. You couldn't carry on doing that constantly every day of every week of every month of the war. Um, right. So a kind of a, a super accurate First World War game would be the dullest thing you can possibly imagine. <laughs> um, you might not ever even see battle. You'd just be sitting yeah. around for, for months and months and years and years on end with a really historically accurate rifle that you never get to use. <laughs> um, and whilst, you know, that historical accuracy element will appeal to some people, gamers aren't going to want that. No one really wants to play a game where nothing happens. It would be even worse than like a walking simulator. It would be a sitting simulator. Mm, mm. Uh, so if there's a prevailing narrative associated with the First World War, it's that it was a pointless and costly conflict. And Battlefield 1 cleaves very closely to this narrative by declaring in the opening moments that this was the war to end all wars that ended nothing. Yet, at the same time, the game admits that the war ended several major empires and led to the creation of many different nations. How well do you think this game handles this tension? I think Battlefield 1 handles it in the manner which has become fairly kind of stable and, and and familiar for first world war games in that they they declare that this is the war to end all wars and it ended nothing they never actually really tell you what the war was for what the point mm-hmm. of it was they mentioned something at one point about old empires not being able to exert will or anything like that mm-hmm. but actually what the war was for and the outcomes of it are basically pushed to the side and i think this is a similar kind of result of the First World War not having a narrative that's as easy to understand as the Second World War is. And to talk about what the First World War was, the point of it was for, you're going to have to go into lots of kind of stuff about balance of power and great power alliances and increasing tensions and all of that type of stuff. And, and the aftermath of it, you're going to have to talk about revolution and um, nationalism and Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and self-determination. Right all of which is hugely interesting to historians, it's not necessarily going to easily play itself out in like motion capture video game. So I think what Battlefield 1 do is basically ignore it. They mention, yeah. you know what, this is a big war, it doesn't really solve anything, but hey, look at this tank. And that's the approach that they, that they take to it, that 
whilst there's all of this big stuff going on at the top, you don't you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to know about that. All you need to know about is the motivation of this one guy that you're going to control for the next yep. hour and a half. Um, yep. He doesn't care what the war's about. He doesn't care what it's about to produce. He simply cares about achieving his objective and living for as long as he possibly can. So they right. zoom in on the micro individual level and just kind of ignore everything else that they possibly can. Yeah. I, you know, as I like to tell students, uh, there's no elevator pitch for the first world war. Oh. Uh, you know, in other <laughs> words, there, there's no real way to sum up that war, uh, in the time that it takes to be in an elevator ride. Right. So, no, no, uh, it's really one easy. of those things where you either kind of avoid, you know, most of the history of the war, or you dive really deep into it and you end up spending weeks and weeks and weeks yep. talking about it. Um, and so you there's... that emergency stop button on the elevator when you get settled in for a really long discussion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, I don't mean to, I don't mean to pitch this as something that Battlefield 1 is doing poorly. I mean, I would say that not many other fictions, uh, maybe not even many history books do a very good job of yeah. dealing with the First World War in this way. So it's not something intrinsically wrong with Battlefield 1. It's just something that, you know, I think it it comes across, that the fact that, uh, you know, there's this tension between, you know, this is a war that, you know, ended nothing, but at the same time, well, we've got to mention the fact that it was hugely important to, you know, the end of empires, to the end of many institutions, and also the creation of new nations. So it's just one of those funny things, uh, I think. And... um you know, I think it's also, you know, you make a good point of, uh, you know, having it, having the game, you know, pitched at the level of uh, personal narratives. I mean, I think that that gives the players something to connect to. Uh, and it also helps them avoid, uh, you know, kind of the implications of being placed in a command position as well. Yeah. I mean, none of the players uh, or none of the uh, player characters in this game uh, are really in a command position, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, most of them are uh, recruits or they're, are, uh, you know, junior officers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there is a little bit of an element of lions versus donkeys in this game, I think, in for, in particular with the uh, the tank mission where there's almost yeah. a mutiny. Uh, I think also in the uh, missions involving uh, flying, uh, yeah. of course, the, um, you know, the British... Uh, uh, aristocrat officer uh, <laughs> uh, who was uh, basically your antagonist uh, during yeah. those missions, uh, and then also with the Gallipoli missions, That's uh, the big one where yeah, where you've got uh, a British commanding officer uh, in charge of uh, ANZAC troops, uh, who actually has a what you might call a come to Jesus moment, literally <laughs> uh, in a church, in a church where he admits uh, that he feels guilty about what's been going on uh in this in this battle what did you what, i mean what did you make of that kind of the use of personal narratives and then also the depiction of non-player characters in this game i thought that gallipoli level was possibly that that interaction between this kind of grizzled australian veteran um who is kind of embodying that guy in kind of war films who is just a soldier he knows how to kill people it's that kind mm -hmm. of it's ingrained into him he's like uh, it's almost Clint Eastwood-esque. Um, yeah. And this kind of British officer who is embodying the empire and the power of Britain and these kind of this burgeoning Australian nationalism manifested itself in this this rugged man who's far more kind of masculine than the British officer is. Um, yes. And that kind of conflict between them was fascinating. I thought that was one of the best parts of the game. Um, the 
and then the way that that kind of British officer, as you said, kind of goes, well, I, I wish I wasn't having to do this. This is all terrible. Um, it's going to cost all of you guys your lives. I'm really sorry about that. But, you know, basically Britain isn't sorry about that at all. Um, right. Was a, a lovely little snapshot into kind of some of those difficult relations between the allies um, and even between kind of allies of the same empire during the first world war some of the um other kind of uh, important characters but kind of basically npc characters were quite interesting i mean you mentioned the the flying uh, the pilot the aristocrat that aristocrat was basically ironed he wasn't born um he was carved out of like overly starched material he was the most perfect <laughs> um depiction of a of a stuffy uptight british officer that you could possibly hope to find um mm -hmm. and i think part of that was to kind of to pl to then kind of further expose how much of a, of a renegade the character that you're playing is how kind of not part of this world he is um but i also wonder how much of it is about kind of slightly latent ideas about what it means to be british and I'm thinking mm. particularly at the way that this game is probably being pitched to an American audience about right. what they think the British, either British people are or the British upper classes are, because the guy was such a caricature. It was beautiful um, the way that he appeared in that. Um, I mean, the player's story is a kind of the individual war story, and which I suppose is what the Battlefield One actually calls the various chapters. They are war stories. I think is interesting because they've they've tried to do a mix of two worlds when it comes to kind of first-person shooter computer games, but also particularly first-person, uh, First World War first-person shooter games, which is they want you to feel a little bit like you're just a cog in a machine. Yes. You're not, you know, you're not Rambo. You're not Schwarzenegger in Commando. Um, you're just a guy in an event that is far bigger than you. That being said, if you want to be Rambo and or commando or anything like that there are going to be opportunities for you to do exactly that so you get to be just a guy but you get to also be incredibly powerful if you want to um yeah. you'll kill dozens of people you can kill them with your bare hand you can kill them with a spade you can kill you can you know you can kill a guy and steal his horse and then kill another guy with the guy's horse um you can do all of the kind of amazing actiony hero things whilst at the same time being repeatedly kind of reassured that you're you're not a, you're not a big you're not like the main character in this war there is no main character in this war you're just this guy for the next hour whatever you choose to do with that next hour is up to you mm -hmm. yeah uh, I, just going back to your points about this kind of uh, stereotypical portrayal of uh, British uh, aristocracy and class I love how uh, in the tank missions, uh, which is the the first ones uh, coming out of the the intro level, uh, you are are literally playing as kind of a Downton Abbey esque chauffeur, <laughs> yeah, who's now who's now in control of a tank. I thought I you know I watched that as an American and thought, wow, they are really <laughs> they're really going after that American audience because yeah. I'm sure you know for most Americans uh, you know having any kind of uh, familiarity with British life would come through Downton Abbey, which is something that was far more popular in the States than I think even the UK. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What I really wanted from that tank level was like an extra element of realism where they all tumbled out the back of it with carbon monoxide poisoning at some point. <laughs> um, and with like ringing in their ears and being unable to stand up. It's, that, the inside <laughs> of that tank is not a bad place to be in the game. Um, yeah. 
which I, I think is a slight departure from probably how it was in the war. <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. As with most games, books, and films about the First World War, Battlefield 1 focuses on American and European soldiers throughout the conflict. Although the game takes place in more places than just the Western Front, players in the campaign never have the option to play as a member of the Central Powers, and they never see fighting in Africa, Asia, the Eastern Front, or on the high seas. Why do you think it's so difficult to find a depiction of the First World War that includes at least a brief mention of the entirety of this conflict? Um, I think this is a kind of a, a confluence of events. I think that um, a lot of the war and kind of the spread of the war is still, it, there is no place, there is no kind of, has no being in our social consciousness. Um, so we don't necessarily immediately recognize it. Um, to be fair to Battlefield 1, they do a pretty good job of some of the stuff that they bring in. I mean, I was talking to some people fairly recently and saying that if a few years back somebody had told me that in the next big Battlefield 1 game you're going to play Italians storming a fortress held by the Austrian-Hungarians in the Alps and everyone's going to play it, I'd have just laughed because mm-hmm. that's never going to happen. It's mm-hmm. never going to happen. No one will ever do that. We can't even get that in, you know, in, in TV series in England about the war. So they have taken on a pretty impressive spread, but it is a, a fairly limited spread. Um, I wonder how much will come in the future. And I certainly remember that in early trailers, they talked, or they certainly had elements of like battleship fighting and stuff like that. Right. Kind of the, the early concept stuff, which in the game appears to have been limited to watching a dreadnought fire at Gallipoli beaches. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was cool, but I wanted to be on board with the guns, you know. So I wonder how much will be coming in the future because, as you, I mean, as you mentioned, they don't allow you to control any of the central powers, which I think is a, a hugely curious decision, um, given that parts of the game set up this idea that is, you know, fairly prevalent in First World War and in First World War games. There are no bad guys. Everybody right. suffers in this war. And if there are no bad guys, why can't you play as Germany? Why can't yep. you play as Austria-Hungary? What's the problem? What's the big deal? Now, they might have thought we're going to shy away from that for we might get kind of tagged on sensitivity issues but they're getting tagged on sensitivity issues anyway um they were always going to get tagged on sensitivity issues so i think it's very interesting that they don't have the germans or the austro-hungarians in at launch i think it's even more interesting that they don't have the french in at launch um yes i think you you're on particularly wonky ground if you're trying to justify any first world war game without mentioning the existence of the french army um (laughs) which particularly when you're doing stuff on the western front i mean the French fight the most battles, they have the most men, they hold the most line. There is no Western Front without the French. Yeah. Um, and similar to the Eastern Front with the Russians. Now, I know that the French and Eastern Front are coming as DLC. Um, oh, in oh wonderful. Um, which is great because you have to have them in there. At the same time, because they're coming as DLC, my cynical marketing alarm has been going off <laughs> ever since I heard that the French and the Russians weren't in it and that they were going to be DLC later on. And I think what they've probably done is thought, well, we're, we're pitching this at a, at a particular Western audience, so basically Britain and America and then some people in Europe. So they're yeah. going to play the British and the Americans straight off the bat. Well, that's to an extent, that might be the Western front done then. We can do the French, we can do the British and we can do the Americans and we can worry about the French later on and then we can go and do the arabian peninsula um and we can do gallipoli and we can do italy and that's that's a that's a decent base game um Mm -hmm. i mean what's then interesting from that is 
DLC is optional. You can choose to buy it or you can choose to not. So what you end up with is that Battlefield 1's idea of the base, understandable level of the First World War doesn't contain the French, doesn't contain the Russians, and you can't play as the Germans. Um, Which is odd, I think, to say the least. Um, Whether or not we'll ever get a spread wider than that, I wonder. I think they're going to shy away from doing anything in Africa simply because I think it's going to bring them into discussions of empire that they really don't want to get involved in. And I don't necessarily blame them for that because it's not simply a case of, you know, you're defending trenches in France so you can defend France and Britain. Um, When you start moving into the African empire, you're defending imperial possessions full of people who are your subjects and undergo some of the worst um, treatment that you can possibly think of in the in the 20th century. This no one's going to come out of this looking good. Um, no yep. one's going to want to really get involved in the in the details of what it actually means to be a uh, an African subject of a European empire. So I think they're going to avoid it like the plague. Um, whether <laughs> or not they go into Asia, maybe. I hope they go into the sea at some point. I think that could be yes. Um, yeah. whether or not they decide to do like a, a Jutland DLC or something like that or I wonder whether or not they might end up bringing in U-boats or some mm, kind of um, too. Atlantic convoy raiding, that could be quite interesting and that could be quite fun um, but as for the other bits, Africa and Asia I remain doubtful yeah I think you're right about that and I think the game, like you said, deserves some credit for at least expanding the knowledge about the First World War particularly including Arabia including uh, Gallipoli. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think that there's kind of an argument by absence going on here, you know, with not including France, not including the Eastern Front. You know, it's kind of sending a message to players that, you know, what's in the base game is what really the war was about. Yeah. And if you're going to go off that, then you would assume that, you know, America played a dramatic role yes. in the First World War. And you would assume that all of the real fighting happened around 1917, 1918. You know, forget forget the psalm. You know, yep. forget any of the early battles. You know, um, so I I just you know it's kind of it's disappointing as a historian, as somebody who's spent a lot of his life studying the First World War. I you know I would hope for more. Yeah, it is hugely disappointing in that aspect, and even all of the narration, even for parts when like in the Glippley thing, is done by the Americans. It's a, it's the kind of the yep. introducing of the missions and that America isn't even in the war when Gallipoli's yeah. taking place and everything I think is basically viewed through the lens of American arrival in 1917 and 1918 and I think that ties into their the developers urge and desire to have you be on the offensive as much as possible so the breakdown of of static trench warfare from about March 1918 coinciding with the arrival of um, American soldiers in large numbers means that I think they basically just try and leapfrog it so they leapfrog the Somme they leapfrog Verdun they leap Passchendaele and just go straight to where they think the action is and would you believe it the Americans are there (laughs) oh dear okay well so Battlefield 1 like any game on a historical event or topic is filled with embellishments and outright inaccuracies were there any of these inaccuracies that stood out to you as being especially over the top as it were uh, and for my part, I think I most enjoyed flying biplanes that could not stall. I tell you what, flying a biplane in the First World War was a hell of a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm reminded of, uh, particularly with that, there's um, flight simulator games that came out you know, years and years beforehand, where people protested when the developers included 
um, the option to make it easier to fly them because mm-hmm. they thought it would be disrespectful to the memory of the people who'd had to learn how to fly the real thing, which I think comes back to that argument about kind of realism versus actual fun. Um, right. First World War biplanes are incredibly difficult to fly. If you try and fly them accurately in a computer game, you're going to crash. Um, <laughs> and then the plane is going to stall. I mean, there were some other ones that I quite liked. Um, with regard to the tank level, um, which I also think large parts of that tank, those series of tank levels, are basically the, the Second World War film Fury with Brad Pitt that's played right. out in a First World War setting. Now, at various points in that, in those campaigns and in those levels, you come up against the German A7V tank. Now, there were only ever 20 of those built and put into battle. I think we, I blew up at least half of those over the course of that of that level. <laughs> I mean, that, that one guy in that one tank was having a hell of a day that he managed to see basically the entirety of the German tank A7V fleet um, right. rolling towards him. Um, there were various kind of little embellishments and stuff in there. I mean, they've got guns that are not widespread in use um, mm-hmm. in the First World War, and apparently everyone's carrying them. Um, what they've clearly done is they've, like, they've trawled through the First World War's back catalogue and found the stuff that they think could be interesting and could be fun, um, and then gone, well, you know, there are only 20,000 of these guns made. Well, what are you going to do? Everybody can have one because it makes it much easier to, if everyone's running around with the equivalent of a submachine gun. Um, it makes it more exciting. It makes it more dramatic. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll throw it in and the people who notice, notice, and no one else is going to care. And I think that's an attempt again to basically make the game more action-packed. Um, right. I mean, the, 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 the FPS game Verdun is, you know, fully accurate weaponry if you want. It's all iron sights. There's no real submachine guns and stuff like that. What you end up with is a game that's really hard. I mean, it's, I really like Verdun. It's, it's, it's good fun. And, you know, whenever you win a battle or even whenever you shoot someone, you get a sense of achievement because it's not easy. But Verdun allows itself to take a much kind of slower pace. It's, it's a kind of maybe a more considered game, but it's a really slow burner with those multiplayer levels that last for 40 minutes or so. Um, right. Whereas I don't think Battlefield were interested in, you know, sticking anyone in anywhere for 40 minutes and having an awful lot happen. Um, <laughs> so I think they've ditched realism again in favour of action. I mean, I can understand it. I've always had a slightly different approach to realism in computer games and even in films and stuff than some of my, my colleagues have. Um, and I understand their position that we want things to be realistic. We want things to be accurate. At the same time, the point of computer games and the point of films, the point of any media is for it to be fun. Yeah. Um, a game that is hugely historically accurate, our, our trench sitting simulator, you know, everyone's wearing exactly the right uniform. They've all got the right cat badges. They're eating, you know, time period specific food. No one's going to play it because it's dull. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that game is a failure. I'd rather that computer games and films didn't just make stuff up. For the, for the point of narrative or for the point of whatever it is that they're trying to do. Um, I've always been of the mind that there is plenty of drama and accuracy, or not accuracy, action and tragedy and humour and ridiculousness in the First World War and in any other war. You don't need to make stuff up. There's, there's loads of it in there. You just need to go and find it. That being said, I think the job of accuracy and of informing opinion and of putting out kind of interesting nuggets of information and analysis about kind of the grand narrative is the job of historians. We shouldn't right. be looking to computer games and films and TV shows to be doing our job for us. 
what we should be doing is working more closely with computer games and films to ensure that we get the right messages out. It's not always easy. Uh, I have tried numerous times to try and get in contact with EA and DICE over Battlefield 1 to talk to them, and they're not biting, um, which is uh, <laughs> disappointing, particularly for me, because I, I, I've got so many questions I'd love to ask them. Yeah. Uh, but, and even when you kind of collaborate on a TV show or a game, they're going to make an editorial decision based on what they think is interesting rather than what you think is interesting. Um, but my experience of talking to games developers, um, particularly the people who made, say, Verdun and uh, Jung Fenice, who made Valiant Hearts, mm-hmm. and, and the guys behind like the Great War mod for um, that came from Napoleon Total War, is the second that you tell them that you're like a historian and an academic and you want to talk to them about their game, they get really interested. They're kind of flattered by it that, you know, you, you think this is worth talking about. You liked my game. You, you enjoyed it. You know, people like to know that their stuff has been appreciated. But what I end up walking away from is the feeling that actually if there's a problem with historical accuracy in computer games, it's because not enough historians are getting involved. Um, I think yeah. this one might be on us. We didn't reach out properly. We either didn't understand it or I was at a conference in the French Institute in London about this time last year. And I was talking to them about computer games with, and it was fantastic to meet them, Young Venice, who did Valiant Hearts, which, if there's any doubt, I adored that game. I thought it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was there, And we were talking about um, First World War computer games to an audience of people who I've known for years, like best part of a decade at least. And they're all great people and they're all smart and they're all incredibly knowledgeable. And none of them had known that this little mini revolution in First World War games was being played out. The mm-hmm. idea that Valiant Hearts sold millions and millions of copies had completely passed them by. And I was right. saying to them afterwards that if any of us, if any historian sold a copy of their book, like four million copies of it, we would justifiably never shut up about it because that's a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. And this focus on the First World War within computer games have been basically played out largely without any acknowledgement within the First World War realm that it was taking place. Um, so I think that one's probably on us, actually. Yep. And even with the kind of the release of, of Battlefield One, um, the 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 group of us as a whole have been slow to react to it. I mean, it's fantastic that uh, I was various of my colleagues and that have been kind of getting quite interested in first world computer games now, which is terrific and it's fantastic. But Battlefield One was announced almost a year ago, wasn't yep. it? in maybe March time at the, at, at the earliest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think historians have to do more. Um, again, it would be nice if makers of AAA games would occasionally answer their emails. That'd be <laughs> um, particularly when, you know, geeky first world or historians try and reach out to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've been, I've been trying to do a bit of that myself. You know, this, this podcast, this uh, video series also goes out, uh, to Gama Sutra, you know, which is a yep. major website for game developers. And, you know, occasionally I get some good feedback uh, from developers, uh, you know, asking questions. Uh, but, you know, there really isn't that kind of connection. And I think there really should be because, you know, as I've argued elsewhere, you know, as you've argued before, you know, it, it really behooves uh, game developers to try to find the most interesting stories the most interesting angles uh, with regards to these topics. And I think that historians can help them do that. Yeah, absolutely. They absolutely can. And also, I mean, within the heart of every historian lurks at some level a geek. 
whatever <laughs> it is that they're geeky about, yeah. whether it's uh, you know their subject or particular books or particular films or particular computer games, we all have that geeky element in this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. Right. Um, it, the study of history lends itself quite nicely to being a geek. And certainly for my part, um, I mean, there's there's been a joke going around in uh, the First World War centenary circles, the idea of the old um, propaganda poster, Daddy, what did you do during the Great War centenary? Um, my answer being, I played an awful lot of computer games. It makes me <laughs> immensely happy. Um, and, and I think it's something that isn't going to go away. I mean, Battlefield 1 is the equivalent of, I was trying to explain to, some again, some friends who were, um, within the kind of the First World War sphere, but weren't computer game players, that Battlefield One coming out being set in the First World War is like the biggest film release of the year. Yes, being a First World War film, yes. it's like you know DC suddenly releasing a brand new series of comics or graphic novels yeah. about First World War. It's like the new Star Wars film being about and, the First World War. And you it's have a to, big deal. You have to think about the audience that it's reaching. I mean, for many yeah. people. Uh, for many young players, this might be the first time they've ever heard of the First World War, is through Absolutely. this game. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, with all the, the, the respect in the world for everything that I've written and that my colleagues and that have written, more people will play this game than will ever read our books. Mm -hmm. The audience for it is vast. I mean, there is going to be no doubt that this game has probably already sold millions of copies. Um, and every DLC that they drip out will produce brand new content with brand new players. YouTube Let's Play videos are all about Battlefield 1 at the moment. People are playing Battlefield 1 multiplayer and streaming it and YouTubing it. It's, it is huge. And it's fantastic. I mean, it's great that this is, this is playing out and it's got this fantastic new interest in the first world war right in the middle of the centenary. But I think it is the type of thing that historians need to go, okay, we, we need to start. Firstly, understanding that computer games are as relevant to study as poetry or film or right. novels or anything like that and also we should probably start actually getting involved in this process because certainly my uh, experience of it is that the, the guys who are making these games are trying their very very hardest you know they're buying books they're watching documentaries they're, they're consuming as much first world war material as they can um and they're trying to find you know the elements and the stories that they think are going to be interesting and fun and that's fantastic but they're not historians right um, and they're not pretending to be either. To their immense credit, they're, they're, they're totally not pretending that they're, you know, they're classically trained historian academics or anything like that. We could make their job much easier for them. And because this, these types of big games are going to go out anyway, they could make our jobs much easier for us as well. Yep. Well, on that optimistic note, uh, that's going <laughs> to do it. That's going to do it for our episode of History Respawn. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. My absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of History Respond and would like to support the show, please visit our page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respond. 